Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. You may know Biana Goladriga from her work as a news anchor for CNN and previously for CBS, ABC, and CNBC, reporting on a wide range of topics. But you probably don't know her backstory of her family's Jewish immigrant story from the Republic of Moldova, where she was born during the years of Soviet hegemony. As a student here and later as a journalist, she's closely followed developments in Eastern Europe and Russia, which makes her a particularly insightful voice in this moment of high drama in Ukraine. I spoke with Biana yesterday, and here's that conversation. Biana Goladriga, so good to see you, my friend. You've been busy over there at CNN because of the events in Ukraine. Lots of reporting out of there. And you bring a unique perspective to it because you come from that region. Talk a little bit about that and your background. Yeah, well, first of all, it's good to be with you. It's an honor. This is one of my favorite shows. And and I've told you that repeatedly over the past few years. So I'm I'm thrilled to be joining you. That is not, by the way, why you were invited, but I I don't want to encourage that (laughs) sort of flattery. But It's uh, true. It is true. I'm probably the only person who's run marathons listening to your podcasts and interviews. So (laughs) maybe they're running a little too long if you cover marathons. But anyway, go ahead. I I was born in Moldova, which is a small independent country. Um, to the west uh, of Ukraine, sandwiched between Ukraine and Romania, and obviously it was part of the Soviet Union. And uh, they also are experiencing similar separatist disruption in a region there, Transnistria, which is to uh, Moldova's east and west of um, of Ukraine. And it's a similar story. Uh, you have a country, a small, poor, at one time was the poorest country, in in Europe, and um, they have a you know uh, an, an economy that's starting to pick up. A democratically elected president who has been very impressive uh, over the past few years, and making it clear that she is hoping to align the country more with the West, with Europe. And she now, along with so many other European leaders, are scrambling to try to bring an end to what we're seeing in, in Ukraine. I want to talk in detail about what's going on right now, but I do want to stick with with your story. And I have to insert my own because my father was an immigrant from what was then called Bessarabia. I think in the 10 years that he lived there, his the first 10 years of his life, uh, at one point it may have been a part of Moldova, uh, his town, uh, Kotin, and uh, he... Uh, uh, and he he fled the pogroms uh, with his family as a a youngster. I can only imagine what he'd be thinking uh, right now. But tell me about your family and your decision, or you were a small child, but their decision to to leave and and come to the U.S. Yeah, I wish I could claim credit for this. This was solely my parents' decision in 1980. Uh, they had been newly married. Um, I was born a little over a year after they, um, they were married. And they had, my dad in particular, had always yearned to move to the West and to the United States in particular, just for, for more freedom, both economically and personally. Uh, as you know, Soviet Jews, you were only uh, allowed to achieve um, to, to a certain degree in terms of both an education and career in in russia in the soviet union and uh he yearned for more and he had the support of his of his parents and so when he first met my mom uh they had a six-month courtship and the first thing he said to her was i'm planning to move to the united states so unless you're serious about joining me you probably shouldn't 
be dating? And she said, of course, let's do it. That's quite a pickup line. <laughs> exactly. They got, they got very serious very early. And they were part of the wave of, of Soviet Jews leaving uh, the country at the time and going you know, primarily to the United States, but also Israel. I was 18 months old when um, we left Moldova. Why the U.S. and not Israel? Because there was this huge outmigration of Jews to Israel at that at that time. Yeah, and and we left on Israeli visas, and so as we as as many did, as the most Soviet Jews left, um, and of course, once you're going through the immigration process, it was about a month. I think we spent in Rome, and then in Vienna. Um, as we were going through the formalities of applying for visas and what have you, my parents had always, my dad had always known that he wanted to go to the United States. And I think he had always had it ingrained in him. You know, they, as much as Soviet propaganda tried to instill in them the sense of fear and greed um, and corruption and violence and drug abuse in the West, uh, they could see through it. And he and his, my grandfather, who fought in World War II, a decorated veteran, had been a huge fan of the United States. In fact, I think he was just anti-anything Soviet. So um, even during the Olympics, he had always been, you know, rooting for America or anybody who Russia, the Soviet Union was playing. And he also encouraged my dad to go to the U.S. So Israel was never really in the cards for them. They they had always had their eyes set on, on the U.S. and it was just a matter of where. And so they always tell a funny story of, you know, we left where we were allowed to leave the $270, $90 a person. So that's it. And a few belongings, some, some photographs, mementos, and that's it. And so my parents, as they're walking through the streets of Rome, as the immigration process is, is taking place, and it, the United States at that time is very welcoming to young immigrants, especially with educated young families, it, we sort of checked all, all the, the marks there. And uh, they kept asking other Soviet Jews where they were moving and where they were going. And Hyas, the Jewish Resettlement Refugee Agency, um, was our sponsor, as they were for, for so many thousands of others. And my parents kept hearing that their people were going to Brighton Beach, to New York. It was New York or Los Angeles. With all due respect to New York, I mean, I ended up moving here. I think my parents viewed themselves as contrarian, and if they were going to move to another country, they really wanted to assimilate. And so my dad said to my mom, you know, Jana, I, I don't think we should go to New York or Brighton Beach. And that was about it. That was their criteria. They wanted to go somewhere warm um, and not New York or Los Angeles, where a lot of the other Soviet Jews were moving. So Haya said, there's a family in Galveston, Texas that would love to sponsor you. And that's how we ended up in Texas, like fish out of water. Yeah, not a huge... Jewish community, probably certainly not a huge Russian Jewish community in Galveston, I imagine. No. And uh, you can imagine what we look like. Um, I, there, there's a folk, you know, family story that, that my husband and everyone that, that knows me has heard many times. But when we, it was May, and when we ended up moving to, we left uh, Rome for New York and then spend the night in New York where, you know, like my, my mom and dad and I were dressed in, in sweaters. It was a brisk spring day. And from New York, we flew to Houston. From Houston, a small plane uh, flew us to, to Galveston. And as they got off the plane, we walked outside on the tarmac. And, and my mom, we were all just struck by this heat where she's carrying me. And they'd never experienced something like this ever in their lives. So my mom turns to my dad and asks, well, where did you bring me? And he <laughs> says, oh, woman, you know, it's 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 just the the heat from the engine of the plane. There's no real heat like this. Like no one can live like this. And as we yeah, walk wrong. further away yes. from the plane, yeah, you realize that it was still as hot. So the engineer yeah. didn't quite didn't pick that up. Yeah, she must have been hot too at that point, huh? Oh yes, exactly. How long did you stay in Galveston before you moved to Houston? Six months. So my dad cleaned. You know, both my parents were educated, and and this is just one of those great immigrant stories where you get goosebumps and, you know, only in America kind of thing. But he cleaned ship barges with parolees um, as a job and and a way to to learn the language. And my mom um, worked for free at a local daycare, mopping the floor so that I could have daycare um, throughout the day and spend some time with other children and start to, to learn the language. So... Uh, my dad ended up getting a job in Houston, an engineering job. So that's how we left Galveston and moved to Houston, and they've been there ever since. And your mom also, she she got a, a professional job as well as a, as a communications director, is that right, or as a 
She, she's an IT, yeah. She's um, an IT director and um, chief technology officer for uh, a major oil company in, in Houston. And she is just, she's my role model, my rock. I mean, this is a woman who was a school teacher in, in Moldova and came here and developed a knack for computers and technology and has worked at many large corporations and working her way up the ladder uh, to, to be, you know, a, a chief executive, an executive at a top, a top Fortune 500 company. But it wasn't that easy for you, as I understand it. And one, one, one can sort of imagine you're, uh, you're an immigrant kid, uh, you're Jewish in, a, in, in, a, in an environment where you're surrounded by uh, kids who are not. Uh, you were different. Uh, and uh, tell me about that and what your memories of that were as a, as a child. Yeah, I, I was different and an only child growing up in a, a suburb of Houston. Obviously, Houston has a rather large and thriving Jewish community, but uh, where we first moved, Channel View, Texas, um, I don't know. I have yet to meet any other Jews from Channel View, Texas, to be quite honest. And, um, and on top of that, yes, we were Soviet immigrants. And at the time, in the 1980s, the Soviet Union was the enemy. And uh, somebody named Bianca Ladriga with parents named Jean and Vitali with heavy accents, you know, you, you stand out like a sore thumb. And it, it was interesting because my parents met along the way other Russian families. But given where we were, um, given the lack of, you know, there, there, were, there weren't that many Russian immigrants there. And, and the reason my parents moved there in general was to, to assimilate and, and, and meet Americans and, and live next door to Americans. And that was our that was our life growing up, and we had a, a my parents bought their first house when I was five years old in a little cul-de-sac, and all of our neighbors became my parents' best friends. But yes, going to school, being I think the only Jew in my school, if I'm not mistaken, um, for many people I met, I was the first Jew they'd ever met, and then on top of that, you know, coming from the quote-unquote enemy, I you know I was called Tommy Spy, all, all the things kids are called, and people are made fun of that are, you know, born in America with going back generations of American families, just they have a funny last name, but someone will always find a reason. And, and there were just several reasons to, <laughs> to make fun of me, I guess. And how did you deal with that? It, um, you know, it, it had its challenges. I, and I still have this trait and, and I, I come to realize it's probably negative, of not wanting to upset my parents or let them down. And this was at a time when they both were, you know, managing two jobs at a time, working, you know, double shifts and just trying to get by. We were lower middle class and, and I never felt that I was lacking for anything. I never felt poor at all. And I was felt I had everything I needed, but yes, I didn't have a, a nanny or our babysitter was our, the Filipino family, the lovely Filipino family that lived next door to us. I would stay with them until midnight and, and then they picked me up from the bus school bus and I think I internalized a lot of things as an only child and uh, I also didn't really have much of an escape given that I was privy in first hand everything my parents were going through the highs and the lows and the, the layoffs and the struggles with you know the language and, and and you could see sort of even the persecution they would feel from colleagues, whether it's because of their accents or, or, or you know, our religion or, or what have you. So as a kid, I, I think I just, I held it all in and, and tried not to upset them by telling them what I felt were probably trivial feelings and issues given what they were going through. And, you know, as you grow up, you realize, especially becoming a parent yourself, how important it is to just talk, right? And, and you want to hear your kids. You don't want to hear them just say, school is fine. Everything's okay. Don't worry. I read somewhere that you, uh, and I think this is not uncommon, but you really didn't, you didn't want to speak Russian. You you wanted to leave all of that behind you. You wanted to be like everybody else. I mean, I've had this discussion with so many, so many people who are from immigrant families. But uh, tell me about that. Yeah, I for forever, you know, wanted my name to be Michelle Smith. And anytime I had friends come over to my house, I would you know make sure my parents didn't speak in front of them and didn't speak Russian and make sure we have all American snacks. We never had snacks, it's sort of a, a telltale sign of an immigrant household. You don't have snacks, all the food has to be prepared. Um, and so I, I wanted to blend in and 
looking different, sounding different, you know, it, it just, it, it made you feel unwelcome at times. And so my parents, on the one hand, as I keep talking about wanting to assimilate and become Americans, they never lose sight of their, they never lost sight of their culture and their background. And it was important to them that I learn Russian and speak Russian. And as much as they disagreed with the government at the time and communism and all of that and leadership there, they were able to separate that with Russia's and the Soviet Union's rich history. And so they kept insisting that I speak Russian and I refused. And so, you know, being the good capitalist my dad was, suggested that he would start paying me so $5 a week <laughs> or whatever it was to speak Russian at home. And so I did. It worked. And, uh, and so, so you were a bit of a capitalist yourself. Exactly. It works. It works. Um, I didn't know how to read or write as a kid. So, um, in Russian. So I later, you know, when I was 10 or 11, my parents got a tutor and, and I learned, um, but it, it, it now, of course, and this is so cliche, you hear it from so many immigrant families and when they grow up, how important it is to retain the language, the culture, not lose it. And my, Children now speak Russian and take Russian lessons as well. So there you go. And what and what about Judaism? Uh, there too, you were a minority of one. Apparently, was that uncomfortable? Were you guys Were you guys practicing? Yeah, we joined a synagogue and um, it, the the congregation in it was in downtown you know Houston proper, which again has a large Jewish mm-hmm. community. So it was always a, a trek. It was a forty five minute ride. That my mom you know, and dad, mostly my mom, would you know, make sure every Tuesday I go to Hebrew school, I go to Sunday school. We always belong to, and then, then you know Friday night sometimes we go to services as well. Um, so it was really important. My parents. I mean, anybody who grows up in sort of an atheist country like the Soviet Union was, um, no one was able to really practice freely. So my parents didn't grow up having a bar or bat mitzvah, but you know, in them it was more of a cultural tie that, that that you marry someone jewish and and that you continue the faith mm-hmm. um and so they they really instilled that in me as well but i would say i i out of all of the other you know areas where i wanted to fit in and assimilate i really took pride in being jewish and much more than i did being soviet <laughs> and so for me it was never an issue of having to be forced to do something i quickly made a lot of friends in in houston and then you know as i went my moved to college. My parents then moved closer there now in downtown. And it would have made life a lot easier for me had they lived there right away. But I'm proud of their success and being able to achieve that. But you did go to high school in, in Houston, a, a high school of performing arts. I did. What, what attracted you to that? Um, it, it is a, a wonderful school. It remains a wonderful school academically. And it's uh, while it's a public school, you still have to maintain a certain grade point average and you have to audition to get in. And so that had um, that seemed promising to my parents. They liked that, obviously, coming from an immigrant family in the Soviet Union. You know, education was uh, very important for them. And, and, to make, and they really invested a lot of time and making sure I could go to you know, the best schools and obviously private schools were, were never an option for them. And um, I, I did. I, I went to wonderful public schools in Houston and, and ended up going to the high school for performing and visual arts. And I think another avenue that I don't know if it's being an only child or being an immigrant or any, another way I found to express myself was through theater as a kid. And so I, I majored, I auditioned to, um, to major in theater, the theater department there, and I got in. And, um, you know, my claim to fame is that, you know, Beyonce went to school. She was there as well. You both have done well. Well, yes, yes. <laughs> Different areas. <laughs> Do you keep in touch? No, we didn't. We didn't know each other. She was a freshman when I was a senior. But I'm, you know, I take pride in that. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. Theater is such an interesting thing. I did a podcast with uh, with Tom Hanks, who had a really difficult childhood. I mean, everybody thinks of him as the all-American guy. He had a very dysfunctional family situation, lived in like 10 different places, and said he, he found community in theater. And uh, I've talked to a lot of people who 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 are attracted to theater and the um, 
that one of the attractions was to be able to inhabit other characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, when I saw that, I wondered what the attraction was for you, other than getting into this high school. You know, look, I give my parents so much credit because, again, I go back to never feeling that I was lacking for, for anything. They put me in ice skating and swimming and gymnastics, what have you. And, you know, one of the reasons, obviously, was to help me become a better rounded person, more rounded person and, um, and, and thrive in different areas. But also it was, you know, good daycare, too. What are we going to do with Bihana? Um, and, and I just really enjoyed theater. And I, I think you know, perhaps if I look, you know, in, into why theater specifically, I, I think it is a great escape um, for many people. And uh, it's a challenge to, to sort of learn about other characters, become that character, have a, have an escape from, not that there was much, you know, I had something to escape from necessarily, but a change in, in a daily reality. And I think as a kid in, in a high schooler, what I really appreciated about that high school was, um, the discipline that it instilled. You know, we didn't have sports as a, as a school, so we didn't have our homecoming and football games and any of that. But we did have to maintain, like I said, a great point average mm-hmm. and um, a community that, that we built. And in, in whether you were acting on stage or you were part of the, the light crew, the sound crew, you know, stage crew, costume design, um, everybody had their job and their role. And it was really important to us. And I think, you know, for, for a 14, 15-year-old, that's a lot of responsibility to take on. Probably uh, pretty useful later when you start doing television as well, because uh, as much as uh, what you do as journalism, there is a performance element to to it, and how you how you react to a camera and how you deliver and so on is not inconsequential. Absolutely, and, and I wouldn't say. I mean, I I'd never thought that I would go on to pursue a career in, in acting. I, I don't, I'm not sure my parents would have supported one. Uh, but I, I thought maybe I'd go work in finance or something. And then I went to college, started you know, really you know, spending more time in Russian history and, and, and majoring in Russian East European studies. But uh, I'd always been interested in financial news and CNBC. And I thought that was a good combination. And now, of- why was that? You don't hear people say very much. You know, the thing I really liked to do when I was a kid was watch CNBC. Well, my dad watched CNBC. So I would complain that it was on all the time and wish that he would change the channel. But I think, again, being an only child, not really having much of an option to do something else than sit there with him, I I became interested in it myself. And uh, it was something that we would talk about and bond over. And so I found it fascinating. And I thought that, once I graduated from college, that would be really interesting, not only just to move to New York, which I had been wanting to do. I had family that lived here, my grandmother and aunt and uncle and cousins who came from Moldova uh, later in the 90s. Um, but I just thought that a career, you know, focusing on financial industry and the stock market while on television, which was something, you know, we took a few television classes, I remember in high school, but, but not many. I was like, I had no idea what to expect. I didn't study communication in college at all. But um, I thought it was worth a try. And, you know, I, I cold called CNBC from Austin, Texas, and asked if they were hiring. <laughs> and I ended up getting somebody in HR who said, no, but stay in touch. And I always tell people that, you know, when you're 21, you have nothing to lose. And if people say stay in touch, you keep calling them and pounding them. And if, if, even if you're annoying, and this is where maybe a name like Bianca Rodriga is helpful. That's certainly memorable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He remembered me, right. And then I just ended up packing up and moving to New York, living with my grandmother and, and calling him again when I moved here. And uh, he said, come on in for an interview. And one of, the, one of the producers was leaving on maternity leave. And they said, we need someone to go work at the stock exchange. And you don't have any television experience, but you understand what's going on on the floor, the exchange there. So we'll, we'll teach you how to put graphics together. And that was it. Among your assignments at CNBC was you uh, were a producer for Maria Bartiroma. Yeah. Who's become sort of a, a personage on the right in uh, now. Tell me about that relationship. And did you see then what you see now in her? So yeah, I worked with her for a good six, seven years. And I have to say, she was a wonderful role model. And as we all knew her at the time, sort of the money honey the, the pioneer of, of women covering 
business journalism from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. And I was just in awe that I, out of all people to be working for, I'd, you know, I'd be working with her. And she was lovely. And, and you know, she, she had high expectations, which I think is always a, a great a great model to have in in a boss and she trusted me and, and that's also something that you want out of a boss and so we worked together very well it, it was never a political it, it wasn't a political network really i mean i guess you could say finance always leans a bit more to the right but that's just on fiscal you know issues mm -hmm. like taxes and what have you so no one talked about who they voted for, who they favor. I mean, times were, I don't want to say that everything's bucolic and it was just a wonderful time in the 2000s and even 90s, but it was different than it is today. And as, as you know, getting into your lane, you know, people may have a party that they favor, but I always grew up with the mentality and my parents would talk about it. You know, they voted for both Republicans and Democrats that at the end of the day, net, net, your life's not going to really change that much, whoever's president. And so, I never thought, you know, fast forward to where we are today, where we've really become so polarized that, that many people in this country seem to put party over country. Um, and so to answer your question, you know, no, there was never, there was never political discussions between us. We, you know, do you, she, are you surprised because she is quite out there now? Yeah, we, uh, you know, we stay in touch just over email and, and, on Instagram from time to time. Her birthday happens to be on September 11th and, and we were there on 9-11 together. Yeah. So that's something we went through and we always send each other notes um, on that that anniversary. But it's it's hard when it's somebody that you know and, of course. and admired. And so I've really decided to steer clear of weighing in on certain things, but it's it's something I never saw working with her alongside her and you know i only wish her the best and she was always supportive a big supporter of mine but no like you clearly see an evolution of somebody who you know you didn't see when you worked together at the time speaking of 9 11 um that must have been from a reportorial standpoint i mean I just did a podcast a few weeks ago with bart gelman who uh, of course has made the study of terrorism and all of its uh roots his focus, but he was there on around 9-11 in New York. How did that affect you? I mean, anybody who was in New York, and this is what I, I told my friends at the time, I still feel that it was clearly an attack on America. But when you're in the city, you know, just like Oklahoma City was an attack on America, but if you weren't physically in that city, it, it feels different. And I, I felt that with... Um, with 9-11, you know, having a physically just been a block away, uh, two blocks away at the stock exchange. Um, but also being, you know, 22, new to the city, I'd only lived here for five months. Uh, I felt so incredibly guilty because I called um, when we saw the first plane hit, as everyone else did, they thought, you know, it was a beautiful Tuesday and, and not a cloud the sky, it must have been some small plane, the pilot you know, must have had a heart attack or some, some, some um, error there but no one would have imagined terror. So I picked up the phone and our producers called and said, go to the building. And I called uh, my mom <laughs> in Houston and she, they hadn't known what had happened yet. And so I said, this plane hit the towers and, and we're gonna go cover, bye, and that's it. And mm. so the three hours before they heard from me again, uh. and anybody who watched television that day, it just appeared that you know, no one would have survived those, those buildings falling down. It just looked like, lower manhattan was a war zone so um it you know i walked home that day um you know maria bapasani who i worked with were, were very caring and comforting and you know you think back to somebody you're an adult at 22 but you're a child like i i, I can't even imagine what you know a 22 year old today going through something like that would experience and i wouldn't wish it on anyone but it took months. It took months for me to get over it. It, it, it really, I, I hadn't experienced that kind of trauma. I would say, you know, my mom and I talked about it later. Maybe it was borderline depression for a little bit. I, I, I couldn't watch anything but coverage. I felt guilty if I didn't. Um, so it was, it was a good, you know, six years to a month before I started coming back to, to myself and, and moving on. It's hard for everyone. Yeah, yeah. I mentioned my father earlier. 
he was there during the period of the revolution and he would describe to me going out with his father to get bread and having to step over dead bodies and um i always uh, you know wonder what kind of ptsd uh goes along with that you know when you have these searing images of death so yeah it must have been must have been really 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 difficult you uh, left cnbc you went to abc uh spent uh what 7 years there as well Mm-hmm. And kind of rose through the ranks, did anchoring, Good Morning America, had quite a career, and covering financial and economic news, had quite a career there at a very early age. What, what was that like? Just the being catapulted in the way that you were. It was, um, you know, it was a wonderful ride, a great experience, something obviously I, I never imagined I'd be doing even when I went to, to work at CNBC. I never thought that or had aspirations of being in front of the camera. I really enjoyed being a producer. And quite frankly, I think being a producer is is so critical to, in, to, to being a good on-air talent and reporter as well, um, because, you know, clearly the audience sees you, but so much of the work, as you know, and working with all of our producers at CNN um, it is done behind the scenes. And so I think having you know, appreciation for that, knowing how that side of the industry works was really helpful for me. Um, and yeah, I got, I started doing the, the morning cut-ins um, at CNBC when I was working with Maria. Again, it was a big supporter of mine. So I'd get in really early and start doing the financial updates for the Today Show and the, the New York morning shows. And I got a call from ABC and, you know, as I'm sitting at my desk with you know, Maria and the team there, and they asked if they could speak to my agent. <laughs> I said, I don't have an agent. Here, you're talking to her. And um, so ABC had seen me, I guess, on the local station there and had wanted me to come in. And I did. And I, I spent seven you know, great years there covering the, the financial crisis, 2008 and, and Wall Street and um, the housing crisis. and then I ended up a few years later joining the Weekend Good Morning America team's co-anchor. And I was there for, for four years, and it was a wonderful experience. We should stick in there that you met your husband, my colleague, Peter Orzag, who was our budget director. And uh, I presume you met him in your official in your official role, and that was a positive development. Our story when we met is one of the stories that anybody inside the Beltway or in New York City and in, in Washington corridors there just cringes when they hear we met at the White House Correspondents Dinner, which I just find rather, for lack of a better word, you know, cheesy. Yes. But anybody it else, cring- I it can tell, be cring- cringeworthy in, in yes. and of itself. Yes, anybody else I tell thinks you know it's glamorous. They see the White House Correspondents Dinner and then how it's portrayed in movies and and what have you. Um, but yes, he was a guest at ABCs at the time. It was you know 2009, so it was just early months of the uh, Obama administration. And uh, we met and started talking and he invited me to a dinner party at his house in DC, which I don't know if you remember, you were there with your wife. I do remember, yes. Yeah, quite a crowd he had there. Yes, yes, he did a lot to, I guess, impress me, to to woo me to come down. Um, (laughs) I didn't realize that was the event. Yes, he had me come over for cocktails before that dinner. That was our the only time we'd really spent one-on-one. And uh, and he went big. There were, you know, he he kept emailing me to come down and I just out of principle, you know, said no, I had other plans even though I didn't because I thought that he should come court, you know, me in New York City. And then when he said he has this big dinner party that he's planning and Am I imagining this that Justice Breyer was there? Yes. Was, yeah. Justice yeah, Breyer I remember this there. now. Yeah. 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 You also, when you were at ABC, uh, you covered the Boston Marathon bombing, yeah. uh, and uh, you you famously did uh, did an interview with uh, the father mm-hmm. uh, uh, of the, the the two young Zarniev yeah. uh, uh, guys, and and you were the one who told them that his son, his younger son, was uh, in in custody. Yeah, it was the the initial bombing was a Monday, I believe, right? And yes. as the investigation continued throughout the week and the search for the bombers, 
um, evolved. Uh, it was Friday morning and I wasn't working. I wasn't scheduled to work that morning. I, I got a call from one of our producers saying they found a number. This is after we had already, they already located the, the boys and they were, um, you know, the, the shootout began. And so they located a number for the father in, um, in Russia. And so they literally said, can you just call and see if this is him, if they're related? And, and I did, I would have, I was in a taxi on the way to work and he answered the phone and it was a, um, it was a very shocking, you know, 15 minute conversation where he sort of told me his story life. He was a mechanic, um, and it's, you know, bordering Chechnya region of Russia there. And he, um, he began talking about his sons and how and he left them there and um, they would have never done this. They're not terrorists. And then he kept asking me what the latest was. So it was about a 12 hour cycle where I'd have to leave the set literally to take a phone call from him um, and finally tell him that, you know, his son had been captured and he was captured alive. And it was, it was an, an unusual experience to say the least, but it, it was, conflicting because talking to a parent, um, you understand, you can feel their anxiety. I don't know their backstory. I didn't know them at all. And obviously you see that their children committed this, this heinous attack. And on the other hand, you have a father crying for his sons. Um, it, it, it was, it was a difficult, you know, road to, to navigate for sure. There's nothing, uh, I can say from my own early background as a reporter, like calling someone who had uh, lost someone or was in a situation like this and being the one to tell them what they didn't know. Yeah. Uh, and it's a horrible, horrible uh, uh, experience in some ways, not in some ways and always more for them than you, but you know, it's uh, that's, that's one of the difficult things in reporting. I'm going to crunch a bunch of the rest of your, uh, your, your, your interesting, uh, journey. Uh, you, you, you left ABC to go to Yahoo News, which probably caused a lot of people to raise their eyebrows because you left a pretty good gig uh, to go there, um, covered the 16 campaign there. I should have asked you, did you come across Trump in your reporting on financial and economic news at all? Or No, no, not at all. Because as you know, you know, he, he was not this behemoth in, in business right. or state here in New York. So he was somebody that you would see on, on the night scene, the nightclub scene, or on page six, sort of the tabloid pages here. But covering, I can't even recall from a strictly business per, you know, perspective and not one of his investments to the side, CNBC doing it, at least a, you know, a segment that I produced, an interview with him and all the time that I've been there. So yeah. that gives you a sense of the relevance he played. Yeah, it's it's so interesting because that image was built on television on yeah. you know the apprentice this idea of the business he played a business tycoon on TV and that became the reality for people it was a forerunner of other realities that he created as president but he got a chance he learned how to and I guess he always had that instinct for self promotion so Yeah. That that is an a talent is self promotion right and you know I think our failure in many aspects um, was not taking him seriously, right? And and I think the business world used to talk to people in the industry too who never took him seriously, and uh, and would just try to dismiss him or, or not have to deal with him or settle with him on any legal disputes because it just wasn't worth it. And lo and behold, you know, here he is running for president, and as we all recall, thought that was a joke. He himself likely did not think he would ever win. And, you know, we all know how things turned out after that. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. You've made sort of a career of following Russian news. I think I heard you say on the air the other day that you were at a sports thing with your kids and were monitoring Russian media while sitting on the sidelines, which I bet you were the only person doing. But the Trump thing is a segue to, uh, it's been striking me lately that um, how 
what, what Trump and Putin share, which is basically a fundamental view that rules and laws and norms and institutions are for suckers, and that the world is all about strength, mm-hmm. and the strong take what they want, and they bend rules and laws and norms and institutions to their will, and you know only the weak play by uh, those rules. But tell me about your you've watched Putin emerge, uh, and you've watched it through. Uh, you, you, the eyes of an American journalist, but also as a Russian emigre or a Soviet emigre, I should say, uh, following following the story from the Russian point of view. Tell me about him and how we arrived at this moment. Well, I think he's a, a you know, case example of why someone should never be in power for, for 20 plus years, regardless of whether you're a benevolent dictator or authoritarian. Um, he he's evolved. Um, you know, he came to the scene as somebody who not dissimilar from Trump, you know, no one really took seriously. Uh, and unlike Trump, he never liked to be the center of attention. So when he worked as the chief of staff or the mayor, um, of, and a, and a reformist mayor at that of St. Petersburg in the nineties, and then worked his way up to the FSB. And, uh, he, he always found a way of, of surviving. And that's why up until recently, I would have never described him as an ideologue. He, he is, was a survivor. And uh, first and foremost, KGB, right, his history. Um, so I think given the uncertainty that, that surrounded, you know, Russia, the Soviet Union's breakup, and the economic collapse that ensued after that, and, um, you know, the real despair felt throughout the country. And, and no matter how you felt about it in the world, you used to see a superpower really turn into barely a, a regional power. And, you know, uh, what that, that phrase got, you know, yes. former, your, your former boss yes. in trouble for um, years the debate with, with Mitt yes. Romney back in 2012. Right, right. Um, you know, I think he came along as a man who nobody knew of and nobody had heard of. And uh, he was there to instill order and stability in a country which lacked all of that. And I don't know how much of that came from him and how much of it was just timing and the global economy was was coming around when he first took office. Uh, once upon a time, he, you know, he himself has said this week that he was open to joining NATO and cultivated, he was the first foreign leader to call George W. Bush after 9-11, you know, it, it did seem as if that evil Soviet Union, the enemy of the United States that I grew up as a child, sort of, you know, being embarrassed of and, and being accused of being part of, that that had changed in the evolution, of the relationship between the two countries, maybe not allies, but definitely not adversaries. Well, Bianca, let me let me just interrupt here for a second. You probably saw Tom Friedman's piece the other day in the Times, uh, uh, in which he said that... Uh, that the U.S. and NATO had some culpability in the moment, you know, that that it was Putin's war and his aggression now, but that uh, there was a mishandling of uh, of Russia in the in the nineties and the push to uh, to enlist uh, and welcome uh, old uh, Soviet uh, republics into NATO and uh, essentially move up. Uh, into the backyard of Russia uh, was provocative and unnecessary. Do you accept that? Look, were there mistakes made? Sure, by all parties, by all sides. And I think you'll have, there are many, it's not just Tom Friedman, there are many people who took part in in those negotiations that would argue that they moved too quickly and too aggressively and and, and weren't sensitive enough to Russia's situation. and, And thus, you know, Ukraine had always sort of been a hands-off scenario because many knew that that was just too too close, too closely tied to Russia physically and historically, um, and 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 that was sort of a no-go zone. But I also think we we run the risk of adhering and and falling into Putin's trap of the argument he's laid out in his. I don't know if we're going to cover it, but that that, that wild. Um, revisionist history speech that he gave. Yeah, no, that was where I, that was my next question, yeah. Um, you know, he he has evolved over the past few years to to really turn into this man who I think when he first took office uh, was not 
necessarily focus as much on NATO and Russian expansion and the cultural ties, historic ties, religious ties between Ukraine and, and, and Russia. Um, you know, I think he was more upset at, at the rupture in the relationship uh, following his going into Chechnya and uh, then the U.S. going into Iraq um, than, than he was focused still on NATO. And I, I believe Condoleezza Rice even said in, in an interview that, that she doesn't recall NATO being the source of a lot of his angst and animosity that obviously years later, our ambassador and your colleague Michael McFall talks about. I I will tell you, um, back in 2009, uh, we went to Russia. He wasn't the president at that period. That was the period in which he served as sort of the the prime minister, though he was clearly pulling the strings. Uh, Medvedev was the president at the time. And uh, uh, President Obama went to meet with Putin as a courtesy as the prime minister, supposed to be an hour long meeting, and then he was going to meet with Gorbachev. He never, he didn't come back. I was a beneficiary because then I got to meet with Gorbachev, which was a thrill. But uh, when he finally got back, uh, you know, and he was sort of debriefing on the on the meeting, he said the first hour was just a a, a diatribe on uh, Putin's part about the indignities that the West. Had heaped on uh, on Russia, uh, so you know there there plainly was something seething there, uh, but it was seething behind closed doors. It wasn't seething before the world, as we saw uh, the other night. Um, what were you thinking when you 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 had the advantage of uh, probably watching and hearing the speech and understanding what he was saying in real time? And getting all the nuance that uh, that aren't that isn't very isn't always clear through translators. What were you thinking? Yeah, somebody texted me because I was watching it um, on Russian television. So I without the translator, and one of my colleagues texted me and was clearly watching him speak with the translation and asked, "Is he stuttering the way this translator is?" <laughs> and, and I said, "No, um, he he's speaking as if." he's not even reading a speech. I'm pretty sure. Apparently he wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. And, and these were his words. Um, he wrote, as you know, that the essay, um, last summer, uh, proclaiming many of the falsehoods that, that he did this past week and denouncing the, the, the Ukraine sovereignty, right to sovereignty, um, blamed. I mean, anybody that says he sort of longs for the, the days of the USSR, that's not actually true either because he's heaped a lot of blame at Lenin and the Soviet Union creating a situation where you know, they, they, they created Ukrainian, you know, a homeland and a sense that they were their own culture and people and, and know in his mind, it's all tied to, to one Russia. And, and that's the Belarusian Russia Ukraine connection. And thus, you know, after this long, uh, revisionist history, anger. I saw so much anger in him too, and really a bit of disillusionment. I, this is somebody who not only is about to be 70 years old and not only has been in power for 20 years, but has found himself to be more and more isolated the past two years during COVID, where he's been alone by himself. He's been paranoid about anyone coming to see him, hence those extremely long tables and foreign dignitaries yes. um, during the shuttle diplomacy the last few weeks. But uh, he, he's been surrounded by his security honchos, and, and that's about it. And these are yes men who feed him uh, information that that he clearly only wants to hear and no bad news at all. And there was a lot of, uh, he, he just seemed delusional, I would say at times and bitter. And I, and another Russia watchers hadn't recognized that, that part in him in, in many, many years, if ever. So I think that really, in addition to what was happening on the ground, I firmly believe that it was that speech and that speech alone that, that really riled up the, the reactions that we saw, you know, less than 24 hours later with the new chancellor of Germany, you know, saying that, that Nord Stream 2 is, is, you know, shut off now. And, and the, the Baltic leaders came out strongly. Obviously, the U.S. did as well. I think there was a real Britain, set yeah. fear, given yeah. what they heard him say. I mean, it's hard to crawl into his head, but... So far, he's advanced. He's got his he's got his troops, but within the lines of those uh, you know those territories that he uh, of of Ukraine that he has declared independent republics, um, 
there hasn't been major engagement between those troops and the Ukrainians. Um, what what do you think happens next? Is there can he turn back now? I would have never expected things to get this far. Um, you know, he had built up troops uh, around Ukraine last spring, and, and that led to that summit in Geneva between him and, and President Biden, where it's almost laughable now to say that Biden's goal was to establish you know, a predictable relationship uh, with Vladimir Putin, that, that it's anything but at this point, a stable. And so I, I don't know. I think on the one hand, part of me said he's accountable to no one at home. He's got the support of, of not only his Duma, but you know, a great number of Russians. And I don't know that you should always believe the polls, but he does still carry a lot of support at home and his popularity has increased the past few months. So part of me initially thought he's got nothing to, to prove, even if he just wants to say, that's it. We got some concessions out of the West. These were only just training operations and exercises. I don't know why the West is so paranoid trying to deflect from their, their own grievances at home. I thought he had an opportunity to turn around because he doesn't have a narrative to send it home and because Russians weren't really expecting war. Uh, sure, the, the Russian state media was focusing on you know the, the West and, and how they will never leave Russia alone and and they want to expand NATO. It was never really as much about Ukraine as it was about NATO and the West, and that Russia was the aggrieved party, the West is the aggressor. Uh, over the past you know eight, eight years or so, ever since he went into Crimea, he's been able to to sell Russians on sanctions because he has described them as nothing to do with something that, that Russia did to, to deserve them, but more the West just trying to keep Russia down. And, you know, they have weathered sanctions pretty well at this point, you know, where oil prices are now. He's amassed a huge, you know, fortress of reserves around him and doesn't carry much international debt at this point. So he finds himself in a position where he can withstand at least publicly, and what we've heard from Russian officials, whatever sanctions come their way. But yes, I thought he would have an opportunity to to, to leave, and and then perhaps the low hanging fruit would be to go into Luhansk and Donetsk, the the two regions there, the separatist regions in Donbas, and maybe that's it. Um, but I think what we've heard from him this week has changed my mind on you know that there's. All, all rules, all everything's out. The way. I don't think you can predict what he's going to do. And, and if it, judging by U.S. intel, which I think probably was was correct, I think he probably did have a date to go in on the 16th. And and I think that intel and this this novel you know idea of, of releasing it to maybe preempt an attack worked, but it can only work for so long. I mean, he can only we can only avoid war if both parties want that to be the case. And and. I think he's hell bent on, you know, disrupting and you know, destabilizing Ukraine as we know it today. Do you uh, continue? You must have, in the last forty-eight hours, continued to listen to Russian uh, media. What, what what is the messaging now? They are once again, you know, preparing for war. They, they, this would not have the response that annexing Crimea did. I mean, that not one shot was fired when he took Crimea, and Crimea was rather popular. I mean, even amongst, you know, Alexei Navalny. Mm -hmm. Yes, right. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of an outlier. Uh, I think for most Russians, you know, he is right to say there is a cultural connection. They're very close. I mean, there are many Russians that I know that have families in Ukraine and that have family in Ukraine and vice versa. They're very close. And I don't think anyone wants war. But I do think that he's created, and going back to Navalny, I do think this this sort of in his arc of Navalny, the, the opposition leader, opposition leader now in, now in, in prison, uh, a gulag, right. and facing another fifteen years in a new trial, mock trial that that took place uh, this week as well. Um, I think something fundamentally changed in Putin since uh, Navalny returned to Russia last year. I think that's when you saw the, the increased crackdown. And after on, being poisoned, he returned to after Russia. After being poisoned and treated in Germany returned to Russia, became sort of this folk hero for no other reason than, you know, his bravery to return home. There are plenty of Russians that, that don't support him politically, but it's hard not to, to just look at what he did with admiration because most people wouldn't be able to do that. And you saw the massive protests at the, the early 2021 uh, in February, March, April, not just in the big cities, but throughout the country that galvanized people to come out. Again, as people told me, not necessarily to, to vote for Navalny, but to have the opportunity to vote against him too. And I think 
that played a huge role in, in part in this shift that we've seen from Putin to, to become just a 100% authoritarian, cra- cracking down on any, any independent media, the last vestiges of media, you know, all of Navalny's colleagues are you know, either in prison or, or they left the country. And I think this contributed to the buildup that we saw of troops uh, around Ukraine and and where we are here. Something just a sense of besiegement on in, yes. in Putin's mind. Yes. Well, you know, Navalny, uh, Ben Rhodes was on here uh, some uh, months ago, and we uh, he had done an interview with Navalny before all of this. And what was striking in his account of it and in his book was uh, Navalny sort of embraced the nationalism of Putin. Uh, and argued, but he rejected the kleptocracy and the uh, corruption uh, of Putin. He uh, he, as you said, celebrated the crime, the the return of Crimea and so on. You could see where that would be threatening to Putin. Him offering himself as clean nationalism, as nationalism for the people and not the kleptocrats. Uh, that's a you know, just as a political practitioner, I would say that's a powerful message. And he, of course, was a charismatic uh, conveyor of that message. So you could see where uh, where that would, you know, freak Putin out. He, look, listen, he's younger than Putin. He's taller than Putin. Um, as, is, as are many, but yes. Yeah, he, he's a great speaker, very charismatic. Has a lot of qualities that, that Putin lacks. And, and yes, it's clear why he would be a threat to Putin. Um, to, to this degree, though, is a bit stunning. Uh, he, he doesn't carry as much popularity as you would imagine, just given Putin's actions and, and overreactions. Um, and so I think, again, everyone who tries to describe Putin as this evil genius, you know, had Navalny not been- As forced- Donald Trump did, not the evil part, but he did call him a genius uh, for the invasion of Ukraine. Right. Right. And compared it to what, you know, he thinks should should happen at the border here in the U.S. So um, I, I can say this is definitely a moment where I am glad that he's no longer on social media because uh, that, that's not something I want to spend much time covering, though. Unfortunately, you know, he very well may be back in the. Political- well, let me ask you a question about that uh, and about this whole issue. Um, you as an anchor at CNN, you've been and by the way, I've so enjoyed watching you uh, anchor this story because you bring such authority and and insight into uh, into it. But um, you know, you you speak about it with the gravity I think it deserves. If the uh, if we have a world in which strongmen can just grab other countries at will uh, for whatever rationale, and the r- rules based order is cast aside, that's a very dangerous world. History tells us that's a dangerous world. Uh, We experienced that in the 20th century. And yet, there's a poll today that said only 26% of Americans think America should be involved uh, in Ukraine. These sanctions, you know this as someone who's a student of uh, economics and of finance, these sanctions are going to have some reverb here in terms of higher uh, gas prices and perhaps some other disruption, maybe cyber cyber attacks. Uh, and there's a very good chance, and maybe Trump senses this, although he has such affection for authoritarians generally, uh, that politically this could be very difficult uh, for the president. Uh, what would you, if you were, I know you're not in the, business of advising presidents but if you were what would you what would you tell him and what would you have him tell the american people president biden you mean yes listen i think he's he's in a very difficult position because on the one hand he's made clear to americans that that no u.s troops would be in ukraine fighting a war between russia and ukraine as he described that would be world war three and obviously nato uh, Ukraine is not a part of NATO, and Article 5 would then not be invoked. That having been said, he's made clear a few times just connecting both the economy and the potential hit that we could feel here on top of what we've already felt, despite the economy you know, thriving in many ways. Uh, inflation and high gas prices have been something, sort of uh, an aftermath um, from of the, the, virus, yeah. with the virus. And on top of that, to then have you know, a major, uh, you know, escalation in crisis in, in Russia and Europe. Um, you can understand why oil markets are, are riled up and very volatile as that is. So I think, 
I think the president has done a good job of not just saying that this is sort of our, our duty as, as a democratic country, as the beacon of you know, democracy in the world and the, the world's superpower to, to stand up for what's right, but connecting it with saying, and honestly speaking with Americans, that they, they may be feeling some, some of this pain too at the pump. And you know, we have to beware of cyber attacks and all of that here, any sort of retaliation from Russia. But, um, but being clear with, with Americans as to why this is important, and I understand this poll, you know, Ukraine is not England in terms of the, the personal connection and bond between the two countries, the United States, or, you know, in, in any, I would say, NATO member. But um, it, it speaks to a larger dynamic that's playing out, not dissimilar from, you know, Biden suggesting that this is a battle of, you know, democracy versus autocracy and, and China. And, and that clearly was his focus going into this administration. And he's been um, distracted, uh, to say the least, uh, by by Putin. But I think the two, you know, are, are similar in a way. Obviously, Putin, his economy is nowhere near the size of China's, but he's a nuclear power. I believe by number size, I may be wrong, they actually have mm-hmm. more nukes once you yeah. get into the thousands, but what's an extra, you know, hundred right. or so. But then the United States and Putin's made clear that he won't be ignored. And I think what you really saw was just, you know, a, a shiver down the spine of every European country. Uh, when they heard him speak this week and what they've seen transpire over the last few months. For for a long time, there had been a sense that there's no possible way that there can be a major war on European soil in 2022. And and yet here we are, and you see so many countries, rich countries, our allies, we're not prepared to become more energy independent. Luckily, we're not in that position, but we are in a position where we have to stand up and help our allies and stand up for what's what's right, because I, I... wouldn't necessarily say that the China, that Ukraine and Taiwan are on the same, you know, level in terms of once Ukraine goes, thus goes Taiwan. Yeah. But I do think China's clearly of- watching, though. I agree with you, but just the political analyst side of me says this: this is fraught, you know, for Biden, and I, I think he knows that and is doing what he thinks is right. Uh, but I and look, there are Republicans like Liz Cheney. You know, we keep coming back to that handful, but you know, they also are on this. Not just her, though, but you know, there, there, there are a lot of Republicans. This is a problem for the Republican Party because yeah. they are deeply split uh, on this issue. But I, well, we'll see how the president handles this. As someone who comes from there, who comes from that region, what do you, what are your feelings as you watch the Ukrainians prepare for what could be? a really catastrophic confrontation. I mean, do you bring to it those feelings that you grew up with as, a, as an emigre about power and uh, how it's, it's used to suppress people? Yeah. Listen, I, you, you never want to bring your personal to work, right? But I think in this case, it's not just that I happen to have a Soviet background and, and I'm on television. You know, I always go back to this being my area of expertise as well. Um, so I, I do think what, what's the most ominous to me about this is having grown up and listened to and, and, and lived through, you know, my parents' experience under communism and what they saw there and what they sacrificed to not see their family for 10 years being told when we left, you know, not only do they take our citizenship away, we were stateless, um, that you'll never see your family again and your feet will never touch Soviet soil. My mom couldn't go back to her father's funeral. All of that having been said to hear them and others say things weren't as bad then in the Soviet Union as they are now under Putin's Russia and the authoritarianism and the fear factor that it's, it's created th- throughout the country. I mean, we talked about those, those protests for Navalny just one year ago, and now you see an image of maybe six people, seven people protesting against the war. I can't help but think if this had been a year ago, we wouldn't be in this position or there would be tens of thousands of people marching on the streets saying no to war. Um, and yet they're, they're, they're in a hard place of just wanting to survive and, and not have to deal with, with the ramifications of speaking their mind. And to hear people who had lived through really dark times um, and leave everything behind for better times and a better future say that things were better then than now in many ways it's shocking. And I, I feel for Ukrainians, I feel for Russians, you know, Putin aside, I think he's probably the worst thing for that country in many ways. His fascination with NATO kept him from focusing on that country's future and, and, and instead in, in diversifying their economy. And there's been a massive brain drain for, for that very reason. Um, 
And so I think Ukraine, I think, you know, I want to take my kids to Russia. I want, you know, I found this sort of new passion for the, the culture and the language. I want my kids to enjoy it. And I'd love to go and, and show them everything. And I'm just worried that as long as he's in power, you know, it's, it's just not going to be a safe, stable country. And it perhaps could only get worse. And, and you know, you could see YouTube and, and whatever, you know, free internet is left there uh, disappear. That, that's what worries me. I was just discussing in the last few months with my uh, sons about taking a trip to visit the town from which my father came in Ukraine. And um, now I'm wishing that we had taken that trip earlier. I know. Uh, because we just don't know. We just don't know. Biana, it's great to be with you. Always enjoy watching you on CNN, occasionally sharing a turn on CNN with you. And uh as I said, I'm so happy that you're lending your voice and expertise and experience to the coverage what is, uh, of what is a, uh, a really, really significant story in our times. And look forward to seeing you down the line. David, thanks so much. This has been an honor. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.